I was told that normal people don't call apples fetal pies. <laughs> that was the best. I saw you put that on Facebook. Fetal pies, that is something else. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to the Docket Staircase After Show Special, Chapter 8, The Verdict. My name's Michael Spratt. Hi, this is Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon. How are you? I am fine and dandy. How are you, Michael Spratt? Good. It's been a good day. It's been a day. We went apple picking. We went... I like to refer to it as donut picking because we both know that the real draw there is the apple cider donuts at Mountain Orchards. I was told that normal people don't call apples fetal pies. <laughs> that was the best. I saw you put that on Facebook. Fetal pies. That is something else. What else happened today? Let's see. Um, I got blocked by Mayor Jim Watson on Twitter. Why did you get blocked by him? Were you making personal insults or attacks or anything like that against him? Uh, I mean, I did accuse him of having a right-wing agenda. But other than that, I don't think that really constitutes a personal attack. That just describes his agenda. Factually. Do you know who blocked me later on in the day? Was it also Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa? It was. Do you know why? Block the wife, block the husband? I think so. (laughs) I also said that he was not very progressive, and I pointed to some specific policies and things he said to back that up. He didn't like that. He did not care for that one bit. Uh, But I actually think it might have precipitated a bit of a good conversation on Twitter about the mayor and lack of transparency and the fact that he does not like to be criticized in any way by anyone. In fact, I think you and I have talked before about how it was surprising to us that we hadn't been blocked sooner, given the wide range of people that he has blocked. And I mean, I've never made personal attacks against him or called him names other than saying he lacks transparency and integrity um, and stuff. Yeah. I did use the hashtag thin skin skin gym at one point, but he didn't block you for that. No, he didn't. Anyway, so that was a bit of a thing. Uh, And this is all happening in the context of a municipal election, which I think makes it even more despicable that he would block people that are disagreeing with him. Well, and he's blocking people who are pointing out that, you know, days after an extreme weather event here in Ottawa, he skipped an environmental debate. And given months and months and months of notice, he claims that he can't fit a debate put on by What Now Ottawa on, you know, gender issues and progressive feminist ideas yeah and the thing is that that group uh also put on a debate during the provincial election and it was an incredibly civilized discourse that took place he's obviously anxious that he's going to be attacked in some way and you know he may have some vulnerabilities on his record but this is not like a witch hunt this is actually a group both ecology ottawa and now what ottawa these are groups that put together substantive policy ideas that they would like to see debated you know in the realm in which they're active and it's just really disappointed disappointing to see the mayor uh, not only blowing off groups like that but then also you know blocking activists and other people that are engaging with him on twitter yep there's a mute button you can use it and you know i'm really interested i know that some 
lawyers have commented on sort of charter rights and when politicians can block citizens. Um, I mean, because it's sort of a big thing, like in the aftermath of the crazy tornadoes that we had here in Ottawa, a lot of information was communicated via Twitter. And the mayor uses his Twitter account as basically a mayor's account. There's nothing personal on there at all. There's no. no pictures of him putting his feet up or chilling with his family. It's all his schedule, his policy ideas, his meetings and things like that. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty big idea. And I think much like we saw in the States with Donald Trump, um, his actions of blocking individuals being found to violate the Constitution. I think that that's like a thing that could happen here, too. So any smart lawyers out there, I know two people who could be um, litigants for you. Test case. Test case. Anyway, so that happened. Also, um, last weekend, we went to this really fascinating conference in Halifax at Dalhousie Law School on prison law. And we'll sort of table it for now because I think we should talk about it in some more detail. But really, really, really interesting conversations with our good friend, Senator Kim Pate, who's a regular on the podcast, and um, just lots of other really impressive academics and activists and, uh, you know, people working in the field. And I learned a lot. So for the podcast update, we've been strictly adhering to our two podcast a week schedule. (laughs) Um, We were, of course, interrupted by some crazy Doug Ford stuff and, you know, um, other issues. But we're back on the ball, two a week. And this is what my plan is. What do you think of this, Emily? We're going to talk about this episode that's the verdict. And then there's like four more episodes We've got like a new season of Serial out. We've got a new season of Making a Murderer that's coming out. We've got some crazy stuff going on in Canadian politics. We need to wrap this thing up. I say that we compress the four episodes, sort of the aftermath, the appeal process and things like that. We're going to, I think, cram those all into one episode. Yeah, I think definitely into one or two, depending on how it goes. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think what we are hoping to accomplish with this is really to elucidate some of the issues about trials and and evidence and burdens of proof and like legal things when we sort of get into the a lot of the um sort of more just human aspects of the aftermath and uh, the appellate process which itself is hugely condensed in the documentary as well um i think we should just i agree with you that we'll just kind of go through that and then we can uh, move on to other things um, because there's just so much going on and we're behind and it's our own fault for not being able to keep to a better schedule but the other thing is um, we're going to go to Toronto in a couple weeks for the Criminal Lawyers Association conference I'm presenting there and I'm going because I like hanging out with other criminal lawyers Um, you're coming too to have fun but you also got asked to do a pretty awesome thing yeah, I've been invited to do a sort of fireside chat with David Rudolph uh, for students at the University of Toronto and Osgoode Hall Law School, law students. So um, that should be great. And I mean, when we had uh, David on the podcast, we had talked about that the two of you might get together at the conference, but I didn't expect to be going. So I'm really excited. I think it's going to be good. And uh, I look forward to seeing him again. So let's jump into it. Yes. Chapter eight, The Verdict. Um, it's a little bit funny that they called this episode The Verdict because it actually starts with the big reveal um, in relation to the, the blowpoke that was found at uh, Michael Peterson's house. Yeah, and I mean, I can only imagine what it's like as a defense sort of walking into the trial on that day with, you know, this giant secret in their back pocket that they're going to spring on, you know, the jury and on the prosecution because... There's no obligation for the defense to disclose evidence to the Crown. So 
Um, you know, the crown probably didn't know about this until the last minute. And I've had situations like that where, you know, you've got a good piece of evidence or surprise witness or something, but nothing like this. No, David Rudolph must have had the sweatiest palms walking into court. And when he asked Detective Holland just those first couple of questions, um, you know, did you remember ever asking anyone if they ever found the blowpoke? Here's the blowpoke! Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, awesome. and, I mean, it's sort of crazy that the defense called Holland to the stand here. And that is super, super unusual. Like, the defense counsel never calls adverse witnesses to the stand usually. And certainly not professional witnesses like police officers. Because... You can't lead them. You have to ask open-ended questions. The rules of evidence still apply. And, you know, they're smart, seasoned witnesses who know the case as well as you do and know where you're going. So it's a super risky move. One huge question that I have, though, is whether that was the only witness that was called in relation to the newly discovered blowpoke. Because um, it's sort of put to the detective that it's that the blowpoke was found, that it's the blowpoke um, in question. But... Um, I'm not really sure whether any evidence ended up before the jury about where it was found, the timing in relation to which it was found. Like he did some, compa- they got the detective to compare it to the various blowpokes, but I was a little bit surprised about that. And I don't think they did because, you know, during uh, the closing, Frida Black said a great many things, some of which we'll talk about in a second. But, you know, she pointed out that, you know, we don't know where they found it. We don't know when they found it. We don't know who found it. So it seems like they didn't call that evidence, and I don't know how they would lay the evidentiary foundation for any argument about this being the blowpoke, because we know that there's lots of blowpokes out there. Well, and maybe it was, like, stashed away somewhere in a storage locker. Like, I mean, just the fact that they have it now doesn't necessarily in and of itself counter the claim that the murder weapon was missing. I mean, there it... it and even like to establish the relevance of it being dusty and not having blood on it, like you would need, I would think, something that connects it to the Peterson house. So that that was a bit weird. It's we, we always kind of we're never sure whether it's the editing or the reality. But you're right. I also made note of the fact that um, the DA specifically highlighted those shortcomings in the evidence. Yeah. So I mean, that was a bit weird. But this is also an example, and I'm like I'm sure that, that the foundation was laid, so it was properly admissible piece of evidence. But this is an example of comparing, you know, what the crown or what the prosecution says in their opening to ultimately what they deliver at the trial. And I think we talked about that when we were talking about the opening statements. If they're making a big deal about a piece of evidence, about some question that's unanswered, and if you can produce that evidence or answer that question, then it really, you know, takes apart that opening statement and it shows that they haven't delivered on their promise. And whether that ultimately makes it harder for them to prove their case or not, you can show the jury that they didn't deliver on what they said that they were going to deliver, and you can turn it into a trial of that. Well, that's the thing, because right after we see the big reveal in court, we see... um Michael Peterson's stepdaughter, Caitlin, giving an interview to the media kind of with her reaction. And, um, well, first of all, just as a sidebar, before we see her, we see one of the reporters, like, just practicing her lines, which I love it when they show that in the documentary. Like, the the reporters kind of, like, they had that when they were by the graveside, too, when the exhumation was happening. But Caitlin makes the point, she basically says, like, well, she gives her reasons why she doesn't think it's the same blowpoke. But then she says, even if it was, like, my mother was beaten to death. Like, if it wasn't with the blowpoke, it was with something else. Like, that is clear. And I think to the point that you just made, though, like, it does matter. Because, and and Rudolph, I think, 
articulated it well in his closing when he said, you know, they had a very specific theory, like that it was heavy enough to cause the lacerations, but not so heavy that it would, um, you know, that it didn't fracture the skull and all that. So um, I think you're right that it's true. The, the, the DA probably could have opened by just saying, we don't know what the murder weapon was. We, we, for all of these reasons, forensically, we believe that this was not the result of a fall. And we believe that some kind of object, right? But they did hang their hats on the blowpoke. And that's, you know, problematic for them in the end. Um, or not. Are you ready to move on to closing statements? Sure. Before we do that, there is something I would like to say to you. Okay. Very important. This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for members of the criminal bar and judiciary. It's anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. For our listeners, Iman's offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit iman.ca slash CLS and enter code STAIRCASE10 at checkout. Or you could enter other codes at checkout, but I assume they wouldn't give you 10% off. <laughs> That's right. Yes. You don't need to put any code whatsoever, but if you'd like to You can just pay full price. You can pay full price like everyone else. Um, great. So Closing statements. Closing statements. Um, there are some of my favorite Frida Black um, expressions and comments in her part of the closing. I've just become such a fan of the phrase, any which way. In a witch away. I don't even know exactly what it means, but I just love the way she says that. Um, she's uh, definitely got a way of wor- with words. And then there's Brad. Do you really believe that Kathleen knew that Mr. Peterson was bisexual? Does that make common sense to you? that it was okay with her to go to work while he stayed at home and communicated by email and telephone with people he was planning on having sex with. And this isn't just a computer relationship. I asked Brad what they were gonna do, he told you. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but he did say they were gonna have anal sex. The only reason that meeting didn't take place was because of Brad. It wasn't because of Mr. Peterson. He was fired up and ready to go. And you honestly believe that Kathleen Peterson knew about that? Would have approved of that? And it wasn't just Brad. You saw the rest of the things on his computer. Once again, these things are so filthy, we can't even show them on TV. Filth. Pure tea filth. It wasn't just sex. It was anal sex. I mean, if there was any doubt, that the DA intended to use this evidence in a prejudicial way, it's pretty solidified by this. And and not only does she say anal sex, but she says, I don't want to shock you, anal sex, right? Like as if just the mere notion of anal sex would be shocking to a law-abiding person. Yeah, so I don't know why they divided up the closing the, the way they did. I mean... Normally, if the defense calls evidence, um, the defense would close first. That's how it works here. And the thing about the closing is when you close first, you don't get it like a reply. Like you make your closing, you sit down, the other side makes their closing, and that's it. Yeah. In, in Canada, after those closings, the judge can instruct the jury. And if someone gets something wrong, and it's, it's like totally offside to object during a closing argument. Like it doesn't happen. 
Um, but after the closings, you know, the judge will instruct the jury and can correct any misstatements of evidence or misstatements of the law or things like that. And getting smacked down from the judge, like after you've already made your closing, is a pretty bad way to, to end a case. Um, so I don't know exactly what the rules are for closing arguments in, you know, in that jurisdiction, but I never like having two people do a closing and splitting up a closing. It always like seems like someone is taking the easy part, someone's taking the hard part. It's a bit short. Like I just I like the flow, the storytelling of one person doing a closing argument, but they start with Frida Black. Yeah, I mean maybe they start. It's always hard to tell with the editing because the the editing makes it kind of weird. But then also when she she starts going on about uh, the images that were found on Michael Peterson's computer and how they were filthy, <laughs> filthy, filth. Like it's like got four syllables. Well, I mean, and, not to, I, I know it seems like I'm just unfairly mocking the accent, but it's just the words and the way she says them um, that are so ridiculous. And, and again, this notion that it's completely impossible that you could have a loving marriage and, in her words, hardcore porn on your computer. <laughs> but there you have it. The first thing that, that we're, we see when uh, the Crown's doing their closing here is they backtrack on the blowpoke. So, like, during the closing, they say, look, we never told you it was for sure the blowpoke. I mean, it's not common sense that they just found it. Like, so we got the backtracking there. And then we also have, like, the absurd argument. It's like, well, I mean, he is a fictional writer. He's creative, so he can come up with stuff. I mean, like, it's an argument that, like, smacks of desperation. Yeah, it's true. Um, And, you know, Jim Harden with his really serious face talking about a picture. They say a picture can speak a thousand words. And then he points to a photo and he's like, this photo, it it could easily speak a thousand words. And this one is a thousand words. And this one, he never really says what the words are other than it's Kathleen Peterson screaming at us for truth and justice. Um, so just back to hardcore pornography. Yes, hardcore porn. So when she calls it filth, right? She calls it pure tea filth. Yes, I don't even know what that means. Like, I, what does the tea stand for? I actually had to go back and re-listen to it because uh, pure tea filth. filth. Like, what does the tea mean? Purity? I don't know. No idea. Tea filth. Um, yeah, and then that's where she says. This, this just isn't people involved in a relationship. This is just any which away. It's called hardcore porn. Doesn't make sense to me. It no. doesn't make sense to her either. It doesn't make sense. Um, I don't get it. So before we move into the, the defense closing, uh, like let me tell you a little bit of things that, that I do during my closings. Because I actually really like closing to a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, like I usually feel like I've got a pretty good rapport. Actually, my first jury trial, um, it ended up with a hung jury. And... One of my bosses was in line at a uh, golf, like a golf shop or something like that. And he heard the person in front of him talking about just being on a jury. And like, you're not supposed to talk about the deliberations and stuff. But um, my boss said, actually, I think one of my associates was counsel on that. And um, the jurors said, well, I'm not going to tell you how I vote, how I how I voted on 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 that, what, what my decision was. But we loved him. He was <laughs> so much nicer than the Crown. But I'm pretty sure that that guy voted to convict. But 
he still sort of liked me. And I think that's one of the things that, that you have to sort of strive for when you're when you're making closings to a jury. Like you have to connect with them. You have to tell a story. And it's a really delicate balance of not being too long, not being too short, not hitting every point and going over things in detail, but hitting the main points and really accentuating points of law that helps you like the burden of proof and you know um the crown onus and things like that but not coming off like a law professor or boring them with law so it's a i take offense to that carry on <laughs> law professors are boring and not interesting i'm not a law professor anymore so <laughs> no that's okay so you can badmouth them yeah. but so it's like this really delicate balance and i mean most of my closings are you know between an hour and like two hours like not long at all and I mean, I've had pretty good success in front of a jury. I think it's all about sort of the connection that you can make with them. Yeah, I don't know how long these closings were. David Rudolph's was well over three hours because after they show part of his closing, then it says three hours later. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, having said that, it was a very, very long trial. So, and I mean, you can sort of see them go over some of those things when they're when they're doing their prep. Like they're talking about, you know, what 10 points do we want to hit? And they've got to be good points. And they've got to, the 10 points that we want to hit, like they have to be sort of like equal strength. And Yeah, that was Tom Marr that was saying, um, you know, we we don't want to dilute our really strong doubts by throwing into our, because David Rudolph had said, well, we should have, you know, 10 doubts. And, and Tom says, you know, well, I'd, I'd rather it be more like six or seven if a couple of them are a bit meh. We don't end up knowing exactly how many they run with because of the dot, dot, dot three hours later, but... And I think Rudolph also makes a really good sort of tactical point when he's doing this discussion with Tom. I think it's important for me to uh, uh, make the jury understand that this is not about whether we've proven Michael is innocent. Uh, it's not even about whether Michael is innocent. Uh, you know, in, in uh, Scotland, uh, they have a verdict that's either guilty or not proven. Uh, and here we say guilty or not guilty. Well, not guilty is not the same as innocent. And not guilty is really the equivalent of not proven, uh, not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. If I spend too much time arguing that he's innocent, I, in essence, I relieve the state of its burden of proof. I invite the jury to weigh, well, is Rudolph right or is Harden right? Uh, well, that's giving up a tremendous legal advantage that all defendants have and should have. You know, what we've basically built into our system is the notion that we want to have guilt proven beyond a reasonable doubt to avoid innocent people going to prison. It's not perfect, but that's the, that's the goal. So you can't spend too much time arguing for your client's innocence because you sort of give up that legal advantage of, of putting the onus on the crown and, and just raising a doubt. And he makes that point so plainly at the very beginning, or at least what we see as the start of his opening, where he says, this is not about whether we have proved that Kathleen Peterson died in an accident, right? Like, and I mean, that was their whole dilemma when they were trying to decide whether to call evidence or not, right? Was like, we don't want to end up in a situation where the jury thinks it's the DA's version against ours, and which one do you want to pick? You have to be really careful in terms of how you how you navigate that. But I thought that was a very just plain, easy way of putting it um, that is accurate also. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest advantage that defense has. And, and like in my 
my submissions to judges even, I spend the first bit of my submissions going over the onus and, and burdens of proof and things like that, definitely to a jury. And you have to explain it a bunch of different ways. Like it's not just enough to say they need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Like I always go on to say, a reasonable doubt, what that means, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is much closer to absolute certainty than it's not. And I always, I always do this thing where I um, sort of walk down the jury box and I start with, you know, juror number one, it's like one through six at the front and, and um, seven through 12 at the back, but I'll start at juror number one and I'll say like, you are no proof at all, have no idea, don't know. And then I'll walk to the last juror and I'll say you're absolute certain, absolutely certain. Then I'll go back to the first juror and sort of I'll walk down, I'll tell them where proof beyond a reasonable doubt is and you always stop like just right before you get to the last juror. So I mean like I try to do it visually, I try to explain it like with words, but you explain it multiple times because that's the most important tool that the defense has. Yeah, that's right. That's the key. If the jury can understand that and especially in a case like this, um, that's really, really helpful. And you also see Rudolph here calling out the prosecution for the broken promises um, about the blow poke and things like that. Then we move on to the judge's instructions. And this might be an interesting thing to ask Rudolph about when when we see him next, because I don't know how long the judge's instructions were to the jury. Well, I think one thing we've sort of come to understand over the course of doing the podcast on making a murderer and probably here is that the approach to instructing juries in the U.S. would seem to be very, very different than it is here. Yeah, in Canada, we have, you know, a standard jury charge um, that covers sort of some of the basics. And then judges will modify that by inserting evidence and, um, you know, summarizing positions and putting in examples and tailoring that charge to the case. And there are new issues that come up. And so, you know, the judge has to instruct on those issues. But, you know, the charges are super detailed. They're, rev- they're reviewed with the Crown and the defense um, before they're given to the jury. And Crown and defense also submit, you know, their position to the judge that is read out by the judge, which is a beautiful tool for defense counsel. Um, because typically sort of the Crown's sort of theory that they give to the judge that is included in the charge is usually sterile. Um, and as a defense, I always push to have a long theory that I give to the judge, you know, put it in strong terms and to have that coming out of the judge's mouth is often a very powerful thing. But after all that work is done, it's, you know, it takes a day or two to get an agreement on the charge. Uh, and of course, defense counsel, you should never be happy with the charge. I never tell the judge I'm happy with this charge. I always tell the judge I'm deeply unsatisfied. <laughs> Even if the judge gives me everything I want, I want more because that preserves your rights of appeal and, and if things go south. But then these charges can, you know, last hours and hours and hours. Well, I mean, just by way of example, like in this case, in the Michael Peterson case, we had the evidence that I think we agreed was questionable in terms of its admissibility, in terms of the evidence in relation to the death of Elizabeth Ratliff on the one hand, um, and the evidence in relation to Michael Peterson's bisexuality on the other, right? You would expect here in Canada a very specific what we would call limiting instruction where the judge would be taking the jury through that evidence and reinforcing multiple times the use that they can put that evidence to and the use that they can't so like for example 
you cannot rely on evidence that Michael Peterson may have been bisexual to prove that uh, to determine that he's some of some bad character that means he has a propensity to commit murder right you can use it as part of the crown's theory that it was an unhappy marriage you can use it to rebut the defense position that these were soulmates that were happy or whatever like i mean i think we discussed at length that we even had questions about whether that would be a legitimate purpose but so and and we saw and and david rudolph did confirm to us that when the judge made his rulings they were basically like the evidence is in like he didn't then turn to the jury and somehow give that instruction at that time so that is really really interesting to me because we have very very similar rules of the evidence in canada as in the us for the most part um and yet our juries require these really detailed instructions as to what they like what purpose evidence is admissible for and what purpose it isn't and they don't have that there so i will ask david rudolph about that but i remember asking jerry buting and dean strang about that after making a murder and kind of making an assumption on my part that we just didn't see it and um uh, it does it turns out that's basically it so and the, the judge basically says to the jury you can come back with two verdicts guilty of first degree murder murder or not guilty like that's that's the jury instruction basically which is bizarre and i mean this jury obviously had things to think about they were out five days and i'll tell you those five days are probably the most wonderfully stressful time and like relaxing time after a case that, that you would ever have. Imagine how different it would be if you spent the entirety of those five days sitting in the courtroom with everyone else. That's a very weird thing. Yeah, I don't us. know. I it, I'd sort of want to know what the practice is. I know. So when I wait for juries, I go back to my office and, and the clerk has my cell phone and they can give me a call if the jury has a question and I can come back over and we can deal with that. Or they call when, you know, there's a verdict. I remember I got called that there was a verdict when you and I were out looking for houses one time. That's right. And so I had to jump in the car and run back. You're not really supposed to be more than like five minutes away from from the courthouse. But I love it when a jury's out. I mean, the case is over. There's really nothing else you can do. It's super stressful. Every time my phone rings, it gives me a heart attack. But you sort of can't do anything else. And so it's just this wonderful like decompressing time where every option is still open and you know things can still turn out um i really love waiting for a jury aren't you dying to know what david rudolph was listening to in his headphones because there's quite a few scenes of him just reclined in a chair with his eyes closed and headphones and i was trying to ask myself is he listening to music or is he listening to podcasts (laughs) and it's it's always it'd be interesting to know like how late the jury sat because each jurisdiction is a little bit different like juries can in Canada, they're not sequestered during the trial, but when they begin deliberations, they are. Um, they're together at a hotel, and and they're you know cut off from you know access to papers and TV and stuff like that. Um, but they can also deliberate as long as they want or as short as they want. They can come up with their own schedule. Um, so I mean, I did a a murder trial in this small town called Lorignal, which is about you know an hour away from from Ottawa. Um, it was about a three-week trial. I was driving back and forth every day. And when the jury went out, you know, they went out at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and it was super snowy and super cold out. It was like a little courthouse in the middle of nowhere. Like there's nothing around. And they didn't take lunch. They ate lunch while deliberating. And they started at nine and they deliberated straight through until just after midnight when they came back with their verdict. I remember. <laughs> like that was 
crazy because Ottawa juries, you know, they go sort of nine to five and at five o'clock they go to dinner and shut it down. And I'll let you in on one little secret, Emily. Mm. In all of my jury trials in Ottawa, I always say to like the clerks and everyone in court, no matter what time the jury stops deliberating at, it's always at 7.30. If they stop deliberating at five, if anyone ever asks you, it was 7.30 that they stopped deliberating at. Because that's after the kids' bedtimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I could come home and you had already put the kids to bed and stuff. And I, I could see how it is. I see the sneaky tricks that you've played. Um, I just feel like it must be such a bizarre energy, though, to all be in the courtroom together. Like, the accused, his family, the lawyers for both sides, the media. Like, at one point, David Rudolph is just sitting there at the council table and he's being asked questions by a journalist. You know, do you still get heart palpitations? Do you know? Do you still get butterflies in your stomach or whatever? That's weird. I just find that would be really weird and hard to re- hard to relax. And then we get the decision. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are returning the following verdict: State of North Carolina versus Michael Alvar Peterson, file number O one C R S two four eight two one. We, the twelve members of the jury, unanimously find the defendant to be guilty of first degree murder. This the 10th day of October 2003, signed by four-person Christian Lyon Jones. Is this your verdict, so say you all? Yes. That must have been gut-wrenching for the defense. Well, after the judge, you know, told the members of the public that they were to maintain their composure and, you know, regardless of the verdict, and then you see Peterson's daughters just, like, that intense trying to keep crying in, it's heartbreaking. And you can see it, like, dawn on their faces what was the guilty verdict that was just read out. Um, like, I can't even imagine what... Like, when a jury comes in, like, my heart is in my throat. Like, it's that feeling where you sort of can't hear in your ears because, like, you can only hear, like, your own blood and stuff. And it's... Even in those cases, even in those low-stakes cases that I've done where it's, you know, not a life sentence, where it's not, like, a super serious charge, but it's still in front of a jury, it's just, like a high adrenaline crazy moment and I can only imagine like this is more so times a thousand yeah and I mean um it's I think David Rudolph throughout the trial you get the sense that he had sort of come to accept that this was not going to be a routine trial in the sense that the rulings weren't going his way evidence that never should have been admitted was getting admitted but then you sort of get the sense that with the late discovery of the blowpoke and he has this aha moment in court and, you know, how can they not be influenced by all that, that I suspect that he maybe came closer to the end to a period of greater confidence than he had probably had throughout. Just, I mean, I think he had confidence in the sense that he knew his case and he knows the law, but just the way everything was going, you can imagine that there was a period there where he was kind of like, I have no idea what's going to happen here. But yeah. you sort of get the sense he had become more confident and was really, really shaken by the verdict. And I mean, when you're running a defense like this, you, you have to believe your own bullshit, right? You have to believe in your case or you, you can't do a really good job on it. Um, which is, you know, why I never like to run like frivolous defenses or make arguments that are absurd because like it's just hard to get behind it. Um, but once you're behind it and you're arguing it, like it, it's really hard to accept a verdict like this yeah because you do become really persuaded by your own narrative and um and again i think here 
it's not necessarily the case that David Rudolph would have expected the jury to come back in five minutes and say, this is an innocent man. But, um, and you, you saw that too right before the verdict when you saw the Peterson brothers all talking together and Peterson's brother, who was part of the defense team, sort of preparing him for the very, 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 very remote possibility that he could be convicted, but basically effectively saying to him, every lawyer I've talked to says this is an acquittal or a hung jury. Um, so you do get the feeling that they were pretty shocked. And I mean, Rudolph's reaction, I think, is it's pretty honest and raw. If there's not at least reasonable doubt in this case, at least reasonable doubt, then I don't understand what I'm doing. And so when the jury came in, it, it didn't just disappoint me. It shook the foundations of my beliefs. It shook the foundations of my beliefs in the justice system, um, in human beings, in my own abilities, in um, my judgment, in my sense of reality. I mean, it, it didn't just surprise me, it, it truly stunned me. It, it, it just blew me away emotionally and psychologically. It's impossible not to sort of feel for him after that. I, the like soul-crushing amount of work and it shakes your faith in the justice system. And like you believe, if you truly believe that your client is innocent, like innocent man, and also just like personally you lost, like it's just so much stuff going on. Yeah, when he says, you know, it shook my confidence in my own abilities and in my judgment, you know, how could I have been that off in terms of what was what was going on here it reminded me actually of when we talked to jerry buting about the same thing in making a murderer and he had said how painful it was for him to watch that episode that of all the episodes it was the one that he found the most difficult to watch was the 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 verdict coming in because it was like reliving it all over again and in every case you can always go back in hindsight and think about something you should have done differently or something that might have made a difference or a bad tactical choice you make even in the cases you win you can look back and find little mistakes or little things that you would do differently and it's so hard not to focus on that in the cases that you lose yeah i think in a case like this i would imagine that most of the regrets are in relation to the judge's rulings because you know i would be surprised if if rudolph really was second guessing his decision not to call peterson for example like if the if the jury was prepared to convict on that evidence I mean, I guess you couldn't do more harm because you can't end up doing worse than a conviction. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to ask him about that as well, um, whether he did have any regrets in terms of his strategy. Yeah, but I mean, that takes a while to recover from. And I mean, this is, as Rudolph said, sort of a practice killing case, right? Like you devote everything to this case, like your whole firm, you're working at a loss. And then you got to get up the next day and sort of go to court and start on another case and start again. And that's really hard too. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it's just shocking when it happens, even though you kind of figure because it's a documentary. And There's four parts left. If he just, <laughs> if he just got acquitted, then, wouldn't you know, be, it's, it wouldn't be so great after. Probably as significant a story if, if he'd been acquitted, but um, just even watching it again um, after having seen it twice already, it, it is, uh, it's pretty tough to watch. Although, 
Michael Peterson really kept it together. Like, as someone who did become emotional throughout the trial at various points, when the judge asks him, you know, is there anything you want to say? He just turns around and looks at his family and he just says, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then he gets sentenced to life without parole. And you sort of, like, see that that coming throughout the series. Like, he does seem very okay with everything. And I don't know if that's because he's guilty or if that's because he's, you know, intellectually, you know, sophisticated enough to compartmentalize things and to take things one step at a time. But, I mean, that's super hard to do. Yeah, he basically says in an earlier episode, you know, like, I know my own mind. I'll have my mind. Um, I'm secure in who I am and I can take my mind anywhere. I think we'll see in the coming episodes that in fact incarceration does take a toll on Michael Peterson. It does. Yeah. So we'll save that for next time. Yeah. So we'll decide if we're going to do one more or two more episodes. Yeah. But we're on to lots of other stuff too. There's going to be a lot of stuff to discuss. We haven't even talked about our, both of us having testified on Bill C-75 for the House of Commons and you testified again on Bill C-51. There's lots to talk about, but we'll save that to another day. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter, at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter, at mspratt. Thanks for listening.